Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, April 11th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So much going on. Um, here's here's what I, I maybe we should start with. Um, there is now a complete breakdown uh, in the uh, narrative of COVID cases leading to hospitalizations leading to deaths because what we have now going on is COVID case numbers rising while hospitalization and hospitalizations and deaths keep falling. Hospitalizations are at their lowest number since people started measuring hospitalizations for COVID in either June or July of 2021. Uh, the death toll is now down about 500 a day, which is, of course, horrible. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not horrible, but it's not 1,500 a day. And uh, the COVID case numbers are up uh, in part because the uh, Omicron uh, BA2 variant is uh, infectious enough that it it can uh, evade uh, vaccination. So you are, for example, you are 10 times more likely to get very, very sick from COVID if you were unvaccinated. But you are three times as likely to get COVID if you're unvaccinated uh, as a case. So in other words, in case numbers, you're far more likely to, to, to contract COVID uh, without any increase in mortality or severity of the case because the vaccines uh, prevent you from getting sick, but they, but they, they don't seem to prevent you uh, or prevent a lot of people from getting BA2. So we now have a total, a complete break uh, between getting, getting COVID and getting sick and dying. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not a complete break, but it's, it's as close to being a break as you could possibly want, which means that the pandemic is over and the, and the, uh, and the endemic is here. And even Anthony Fauci, said this weekend in a in a peculiar in with his peculiar inconstancy having said a couple of weeks ago we're we're probably going to have to put our mask back on he said uh, this is not going to be eradicated and it's not going to be eliminated and what's going to happen is that we're going to see that each individual is going to have to make their calculation of the amount of risk that they want to take we're at that point where in many respects we're going to have to live with some degree of virus in the community. This is a revolutionary statement for him. The idea that it is an individual choice, how much risk you want to take, is a violation of everything that he has been saying now for two years about how all of our behavior toward COVID must, must be a part of a collective responsibility to prevent the spread for the purposes of keeping the, uh, those who are most at risk from, from, getting, from getting the disease. <laughs> so... It's an articulation of everything his critics said to him. Right. Now, he said, while there is concern that we are seeing an uptick in cases, it is not unexpected that you're going to see an uptick when you pull back on the mitigation methods. That is crap. We're not seeing an uptick because of a lessening of mitigation methods. We are seeing a we're seeing an uptick because there is a highly contagious version of the virus 
that does not affect uh, the vaccinated very much. That's why we're seeing it, that it evades the vaccine, which is which is the mitigation measure. Mitigation measures, mitigation measures. There is a there is one mitigation measure, and that is vaccination. And uh, you know, and uh, the other the other mitigation measures, we are I think pretty reasonably assured now, at least at this stage, are ineffective. Despite the fact that we still have you know we still have bizarre rear guard clinging to them, right? Masking, six feet of distance hand washing, whatever, whatever mitigation methods, uh, quarantine, isolation, you know, 14 days at home, all of those mitigation measures are crap in relation to this, because it is no longer, unless you are unvaccinated, it is no longer a threat to you, except that you, you know, you might get mildly sick, but it's not a threat to you. I was reading something the other day about, you know, a mother who was very concerned about has a child, you know, uh, tragically had cancer. And so I had to have her immune system suppressed in order to deal, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what what about her? What about her daughter? And what about it, this? I'm, I'm glad you I was about okay. to bring that yeah. piece up because it, it shows that actually the, the, the new effort at mitigation measures is is meant to be permanent. She talks about a new normal and basically argues we, what we learned from COVID is that we're all vulnerable. So what we need to do going forward is structure society around the most vulnerable in every situation. So that means right. if you have one kid in a school, in a classroom who's immunocompromised, everyone should mask up in that classroom to protect that child. If you want to go to a concert and people who go to the concert are old, everyone should mask up because there might be someone who's immunocompromised. It is, it is the worst case scenario approach to civic life. And it would be absolutely, again, I share your sympathy for her particular situation with an immunocompromised compromised child that that's a really difficult road to hoe but this this idea that society should be restructured the new normal is about empathy towards the most vulnerable there is no limiting principle for that and that would be a kind of version of covid forever that i think would really be bad for the social fabric right so that that piece is by sarah weidman it's in the new york times and there's a striking number in the piece and the striking number is the number, what she says is the number of immunocompromised persons in the United States, which is 3% of the population. So in a piece in which she argues for this new normal, the idea is that ordinary life must be disrupted in perpetuity to protect 3% of the population. And I, I don't care whether this sounds heartless or not, that is demented. If 3% of the population cannot live sort of like in ordinary exigent circumstances because of, a, a, because of conditions that mean that they are at risk from being in contact with other people, and it's 3%, it's not 20%, it's not 30%, it is 3%, then yes, tragically, sorrowfully, un, unjustly, it is their burden to bear that they must remain in situations in which they need to protect themselves from 
from the danger of having a limited or compromised immune system. Okay. There's also a larger philosophical argument she's trying to make here that I think is not healthy, uh, given the the valorization of victimhood with which our culture already uh, wallows in currently. And that's that, you know, she has this quote at the end that a doctor sends to her who says, you know, if we made vulnerability less stigmatized and less isolated, less shameful and in invisible, then we might be less afraid of it. I was like, who, what are you talking about? That is kind of the ethos of our culture. Culture. Like Olympic level athletes are like sharing their inner pain and being applauded for it. Fine. If that's where we're headed. But the idea that, that, that this would be some huge uh, tactical change in how culture deals with the most vulnerable and with people who are, who are, you know, victims of their own particular physiological circumstance is bizarre. And I think, I feel like there's some, there's a control issue here and a, and a, and a desire to see others constantly cater to the needs of minorities. That is part of our culture right now. We see it in lots of arenas, not just with public health. So 20, 30 years ago, people got uh, cued to the fact that there were terrible peanut allergies. This was kind of a relatively new thing but that there were terrible peanut allergies and that in enclosed spaces, it could be dangerous for people with terrible peanut allergies to be in proximity to aflatoxin because they could go into anaphylactic shock if they were on a plane and then God knows what would happen. And so mitigation measures were taken simply sort of as a kind of protective measure, right? You really don't get peanuts on airplanes anymore, right? Because airlines don't want to get sued and they also certainly don't want to have somebody go into anaphylactic shock on an airplane. But so you get pretzels instead. There is no, you know, or a cookie, you know, there, that is a, you substitute one freebie for another. That's life. Like you're, it's not that pretz that peanuts have been banned throughout the United States or that no one is allowed to eat peanuts because a tiny number of people have this peanut allergy, including my, my daughter who has it. Um, here we're talking about the notion that all human behavior needs to be controlled and ordinary life disrupted for what is admittedly by the people who are arguing this, a tiny fraction of the people in the United States. So it's not that you're substituting a pretzel for a peanut. It is that you are substituting having your face exposed to the open air uh, with never having your face exposed to the open air. So how much, happens, how much salience much, does this argument have? <laughs> it has this, a lot of salience. Really? I don't see yes. any policymakers adopting this position. In fact, they seem profoundly averse. Well, they're really averse to it because- these, in part because we're getting these trend pieces that suggest even the Wall Street, you had this piece in the Wall Street Journal that we all saw that uh, this week that <clears throat> people who are outraged by the mitigation measures they were forced to endure for two years and in some cases are still enduring, have not forgotten, have not uh, forgiven and are chomping at the bit to uh, head to the polls in November and exercise some agency and communicate their displeasure. <clears throat> and that's just not going away. And the policymakers seem to be aware of this and are loathe to reintroduce any of the old restrictions okay but the reason i bring it up and say it has salience is that it is there is still resistance cultural resistance at the commanding heights like the new york times op-ed page which uh, uh, whose staffer you know that's where sarah weidman works and where she published this piece um there's a reason there's there's a yeah. there's a 
a, a, a very specific idea attached to, to pieces like this. Um, it's to extend a concept that, that was pushed at this, from the start of the pandemic, which is that COVID has exposed the heartless nature of the US. It has shown how the most vulnerable are not being looked out for because in our pursuit of, of, of capitalism and freedoms and whatever else, we, 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 we don't take the time or, 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 or care or uh, we just simply don't think about others. Um, a lot of that proved not to be true at all. Um, I remember we had a, one of our earliest sort of pandemic uh, podcast discussions was with Jonah Goldberg when he wrote an early piece about how actually look, this is an amazing thing, how we're actually shutting down um, uh, countless businesses to protect e even what then was understood to be um, uh, a, a small minority of people who, who, could, who could potentially die from COVID. Uh, but if the pandemic is gone altogether, you lose that cudgel to beat Americans with. I think that's part of it. I also think that that um, we have a we, we live in a world in which people are now you know this has become a new normal for people, and uh, they don't have controlling they don't have control of populist politics, right? Uh, no, you're referring to a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, about basically Democrats in New Jersey basically flipping to the right uh, because of COVID restrictions. And remember that uh, uh, there was a 13-point uh, shift in the polls, uh, you know, in the voting totals for for um, Governor Murphy uh, between his first election and his, or between Biden and his election, uh, largely on the basis of, of, of COVID. And the piece uh, portrays people saying, you know, like this went too far. But um, the masks are still on on the planes, Noah. Like everybody in the United States or on public transport in the United States is still obliged to wear a mask, can be fined or thrown off a plane or arrested in places if they do not mask up. Now, that's supposed to end a week from tomorrow. April 19th is when they're supposed to decide whether or not they're going to remove masks and Every indication to me is that they are going to have to remove masks, that the Biden administration is moving very fast in this direction. It appointed Ashish Jha as its COVID coordinator. He is a bit of a COVID dove. That was a huge decision that they made because he has been um, sort of like a, a, a cheerful voice on how we're moving into, we're moving out of the pandemic period really for the last three or four months. So he is now the, the voice of COVID. We have Fauci saying everyone's going to have to assess their own risk, which is code for, yeah, you can wear a mask on a plane if you're afraid. Go ahead and wear a mask on a plane. No one's going to bother you if you wear a mask, but everyone's going to have. So I assume that this is going to happen. But notice it hasn't happened yet. Like, in other words, they could have had a meeting last week. They could have, they could have had a Zoom and then decided to lift the masking restrictions. Eric Adams in New York City has refused to lift masking restrictions on two-year-olds. Do you know how many two-year-olds have died from COVID in the United States in the last six months? None. None. Well, the, there's also this issue of, of it, it doesn't have to be lawmakers making policy that then everybody has to comply with. There, what seems to be 
pushed by by articles like this one in the New York Times recently, but you know you can find evidence of this elsewhere, is a kind of cultural pressure. You know, we talk about tribalism in red state and blue state America. I mean, we're we and we've talked about this at length in the podcast over the last two years. This idea that culturally you're going to have enough pressure at certain places, usually you know deeply blue cities and, and areas, where if you want to go to a concert, the venue as a private venue is going to say you have to wear a mask. If you want to go do something, you're going to have to prove that you're vaccinated, boosted, and masked. So you will have a kind of two-tier system where there'll be freer parts of the country, like Florida, where most people aren't wearing masks in most places, and there'll be other parts of the country where masks are going to be there seemingly forever uh, through cultural pressure that then is through private businesses who want to cater to the needs and demands of their audiences will do that. I mean, I will say in DC, most you have to mask up still for, for concerts. You go to a concert at Kennedy Center, you go to these concerts, you got to wear a mask. So there's a piece in The Atlantic by Jerusalem Demsis called Why So Many COVID Predictions Were Wrong, which is fascinating, again, because it's appearing in The Atlantic. And The Atlantic was, of course, uh, chicken little, COVID, we're all going to die, you know, stay inside, bury, you know, bury your children in coffins with, you know, so where they can, you know, have oxygen to breathe until until the all clear, like it was COVID hysteria 24-7. Christine wrote really well about this in her media commentary column. It's insane. It was like insane nervous breakdown territory. And uh, and uh, Ed Young in particular, you know, said, you know, this is a revealed fault lines of inequality and this and that and the other thing. And the piece, which then functions effectively as an attack on the on the Atlantic's own uh, approach to COVID, uh, says the following. Uh, Many early pandemic predictions pointed toward uh, a left of center policy agenda. The she session justified universal daycare and paid family leave and the eviction tsunami. These are all things that were predicted that didn't come to pass. Justified stronger legal protections for renters. State and local distress seemed to require what Republicans called blue state bailouts. But if this trend suggested bias at work, where was it coming from? Golden, one of the people who's interviewed here, believes part of why many forecasts were incorrect is that much of the relevant research was produced by advocacy organizations. The McKinsey report on women leaving the workforce, for instance, was co-published by leanin.org. Similarly, the Aspen eviction study was co-written not only by researchers from think tanks and academic institutions, but also by three leaders of advocacy organizations. This report by the Aspen Institute predicted 40 million people would be evicted from their homes which on the face of it was psychotic because if you were going to evict these 40 million people, who was going to move into these homes where 40 million people were evicted? Like you're going to initiate and evict people without having tenants to take their place. Like that doesn't make any sense. Right. So, um, as a sociologist argued, the numbers generated by Espen may have been useful quote from a lobbying standpoint, Uh, And Panfil noted that perhaps, quote, it was helpful to the movement of activists who were pushing for relief measures to be put in place to cite some of these larger figures. So in in this very article published by The Atlantic, the game is given away that this as as this is the corollary to what Abe was saying, that this wasn't about COVID. It was about enacting a an agenda, an anti capitalist left-of-center social justice agenda using COVID as the battering ram because say- America stinks and can be, and, and this never let a crisis go to waste. 
Abe, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's right. No, I was interrupting you. Um, I think uh, half the game was given away. I mean, it was it was a good article, and it, and it was it was great that the bias was acknowledged. But another part of that bias had not to do with uh, advocacy groups, um, but with the sort of general media readiness. You could get on a show and talk about COVID if you were going to talk about how Trump messed it all up. That was that was a big, big part of it. And no one knew exactly what he should have done instead. But they knew that because he didn't do mysterious things, uh, we were headed for disasters on, on all sorts of fronts. And it reminded me of the the um, resistance, the there's going to be no V-shaped recovery sort of battle that that went on forever when Trump would say, oh, look, at we're having a V-shaped recovery. You know, we're, in other words, hitting a hitting a nadir and rising back. They'd say, no, this is this isn't going to be a V-shaped recovery. There's not there's going to be more problems as this, there's that. And there. Um, it was they were desperately clinging to to the idea that we couldn't get out of this because of Trump. Look, I mean, you know, there are now nine hundred and eighty five thousand Americans who have died from covid. Four hundred thousand died from covid before uh, January 20th. 2021 when biden was inaugurated in december of 2020 the vaccines came online so under trump's aegis in the 10 months that COVID hit the united states 400,000 people died it has now been uh 15 months under biden's aegis with vaccines and nearly 600,000 people have died if this does not retroactively, I'm not saying it absolves Trump. Trump's behavior during COVID was one of the reasons he lost the election. He was inconstant. He made you feel un, un, uncertain and insecure. He couldn't come. He was not. He was the opposite of a reassuring, commanding, you know, uh, hands-on leader or, or a, I'm going to let the experts handle this, so I'm going to step back. Either way, like he was driving everybody crazy and he deserves criticism but he does not deserve blame for a single death and if he does biden deserves more blame for the deaths that took place under his watch while he had vaccines to protect americans against you know so so that articulated <laughs> is um why there's the political backlash is baked in the cake and why people don't really feel like and especially in the white house is going to have much of anything to do with COVID because it really it's about the tertiary impact of COVID on society and all the social engineering that went on during COVID. So Ameri Americans may not be able to articulate that mitigation measures to them are also interlocked with the decimation of America's local policing forces and teaching critical race in colleges and, and, and schools and primary education facilities. And all the money that we threw at it, which is making everything more expensive. This is, these are all related to COVID and part of the part of what's fueling public antipathy towards these mitigation measures, but they can't articulate all the ways in which it has affected their lives because they don't seem really related to COVID at all, even though that was the catalyst for all this. I mean, ultimately, where where Trump or where where Biden aired was in the idea that being a crisis president meant that you had to keep the country feeling as though it was living in a crisis. Uh, part of crisis management is saying, I don't want you to worry. We've got this in hand. 
we're doing all kinds of things to help, um, which is something that they say. But when they then say, you have to make sure that your children don't go outside without putting a piece of paper over their mouth. And that's on you. And we're going to close down your kids' schools if they don't do it enough or because people are hysterical. Crisis management is like, I feel more secure because the people in charge are handling this calmly, seriously, relentlessly, and with, you know, and with a plan and a sense of purpose. And that Trump did not convey in his own way. And Biden really didn't convey because in a different way, he was all over the map. Remember victory over, what was the term? Was it victory over COVID? Or that was like his mission accomplished banner. Was that like in, in, in the spring of 2021, this is going to be the summer we were going to be liberated from COVID in 2021 and all of that. And then, you know, and then three things happened and two eyebrows were raised and everybody had, was, was told to go back, you know, was told to go back and hide under their beds again. It was July 4th that we would be celebrating freedom from COVID. Right. So in constancy and this kind of uh, inability to, to say, you hired me to handle this, I'm going to handle it. And then saying, no, no, you handle it. You handle it. The teachers are all going to go eat bonbons in bed uh, and while they're, you know, and, and do it so that they can avoid your children um, and you handle it. Please just, you know, you figure out your working arrangements and your living arrangements when you have small children. You figure it out because, you know, uh, we can't. We can't make these teeth. Not only can't we make these, they shouldn't work. After all, they might be immunocompromised after all. Like that, that's where I think, Noah, you're absolutely, absolutely right, that we have baked in the cake the idea that uh, these people didn't know what they were doing. They told us 17 different things. They didn't protect us. They didn't protect our kids. And, uh, you know, and they get no credit from us for anything. And quite, quite actually, they're going to get blamed. Do people actually us. appreciate, like, generally, I know that hysterics like it, but do they really appreciate the mitigation theater? I mean, we talk about planes, which is the last place, you know, most people, unless you're a daily commuter on a train or a bus, <clears throat> that you experience masking. And the theatrics associated with flying just invalidate the whole, the whole enterprise, the TSA nonsense, taking off your shoes and what have you, that doesn't do anything for security, is risk exposed as how as not doing anything for, for security because you can pay a tidy fee that the government extorts you out of to get out of this sort of thing. So you're, all you got to do is just you know, get, a, get a quick background check and pay some money to the government. You don't have to worry about these mitigation measures anymore. It's exposed as entirely hollow. It's just a harassing thing that you have to do to live life in the modern age. And that's just layered on top of all the, the COVID theatrics, the hygiene theatrics. Well, and it's, I will say that the, now the breakdown, the cultural breakdown of a lot of the enforcement of the, of the mitigation measures is fascinating. On, our, on my flight from DC to Palm Beach, I had a completely lackadaisical flight crew. I loved them for it. They were like, no, they, they made one announcement about masks and that was it. It was a very crowded plane and there were no complaints when people pulled down their masks to eat or drink. On the flight back, however, it was hardcore. There was a guy going up and down the aisle saying, put your mask on between sips. I mean, just someone who really wanted to be the hall monitor on that plane. And it was just 
completely random whether you end up with that person or the easygoing person. Yeah, you know, on my flight back, uh, they were quite politicized about it. The announcements, there was an announcement that said something like, uh, you must keep your mask on at all times unless you are actively eating or drinking. This is this is not an airline rule. This is not a state rule. This is not a something like this is not a anti-freedom rule. This is this is federal law. <laughs> oh, man. OK, so um, let, let me step back uh, for a minute and talk to you about um Commentary live in Palm Beach podcast guest Dan Senor and his Call Me Back podcast. Uh, Dan, if you listened to us last week, we had a long conversation with Dan about uh, the Israeli political crisis uh, that um, that sort of erupted uh, last week when uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett effectively lost his majority in the Knesset. Uh, but as Dan said, uh, you really shouldn't necessarily think that this means that the government is going to fall anytime soon. And on his new podcast, uh, Just Out, uh, he talks to Ron Dermer, um, former Israeli ambassador of the U.S., uh, native of Florida, um, and uh, as, as, as tight as, uh, as tight as a tick with um, with Bibi Netanyahu about the Israeli political crisis. It is a revelatory conversation kind of a master class in the um in the very complicated uh gamesmanship that is now going on with this very unstable uh political question in israel and what it might portend for the future and for netanyahu's future before they go on and then discuss what next with the iran deal if indeed there is a next for the iran deal and how that might function. So that is Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast. Go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher to subscribe and listen to this, like I say, masterclass in uh, in Israeli politics. If you like the conversation we had that you heard on Thursday, uh, this this will deepen, illum- uh, deepen and further your illumination on this uh, very interesting political matter that is of interest to people even who don't follow Israeli politics very closely because, frankly, if you enjoy politics, there's very little that is as enjoyable as a good coalition crisis in a parliamentary democracy because uh, they're just they're a lot of fun in in my view. So that is the Call Me Back podcast. Please subscribe today. And we are also brought to you today by our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group with three and a half billion dollars or more under management. And David's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, which, as I've told you, is a kind of daily uh, primer about free markets, free free access to goods, and the liberty and ordered liberty uh, that comes from uh, believing that freedom is best understood as the expression of, um, of individuals working uh, harmoniously uh, together uh, or competing harmoniously in a kind of uh, gigantic, let's say, uh, mosaic uh, uh, that, that creates an entire economy, 250 lessons, 250 days out of the year, quotes from great philosophers, economists, politicians, with David's own interpretation uh, added on. So that is, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths from David Bonson of the Bonson Group. Please go to app, uh, not Apple. Don't go to app. Wait, no, you can go to iBooks, which is Apple. 
uh, or, or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore to subscribe. Um, guys, uh, last night, and I haven't double-checked this. I assume it's true because, of course, it was on Twitter, so it must be true. <laughs> um, uh, but a, a factoid came over the transom uh, that if true, and let's assume that it's true, uh, as the as the p- political feed that's on has no particular bias in this direction, um, fundraising totals for fl- the Florida gubernatorial race in 2022. So, according to said uh, tweet, let me just get the uh, let me just get the numbers here. Uh, so, there are three Democratic candidates in 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 the race. Uh, we have um, Charlie Crist, the former governor. Uh, now, Congressman uh, has raised seven point one million. Uh, Nikki Freed, who I think is the more progressive of the candidates, three point six million. Annette Tadeo, I don't even know who that is, less than a million. Governor Ron DeSantis, running for re-election, second term, one hundred and two point one million dollars in the bank. Let me go. Let me let me let me repeat that. Ron DeSantis has $102 million in the bank. The next person, Charlie Crist, has $7 million. So DeSantis has 15 times the amount of money that Charlie Crist has. As others have observed, those are presidential numbers. That's not gubernatorial numbers. And good, because he is running for president, most likely. And... If he is disinclined, perhaps, to to challenge Trump, if and when Trump gets into the race, he's got a big base of donors who are going to be very sour on that, maybe force him into it, whether he wants to or not. Uh, so let's just discuss this, because what this indicates we is... We don't know what the breakdown is either, right? And for grassroots small... No, versus- literally, it's a tweet. And as I say, yeah. there is the possibility that I'm, I'm, I'm peddling misinformation, so I apologize. But look, it's 2022. Like, according to The Atlantic, anything they disagree with peddles is an is a act of disinformation. So you can, you, can, you can go from there. We should talk about that a little bit, too. But, but um, what this indicates is that it's possible that DeSantis's discomfort, possible discomfort at running against Trump might be misplaced. I mean, this is a grassroots endorsement of DeSantis like you've never, I I mean, I don't know that there's ever been anything quite like this before. There is no way that that money comes from Florida. Let's say that even if he were just getting money from Florida, let's say he would have had 15 million with Chris having seven or Chris and the other two added up having 12. Let's say he doubles it to 24 just for the hell of it, because he's the incumbent and he's popular in eh, Florida. There are rich people in Florida, whatever. First of all, this is hard money, not soft money. So there are campaign contribution limits. Okay. He's getting 80, 70, 90 million dollars out of grassroots giving uh, all around the country. I think hard money limits are like five grand, something along those lines, right? Well, I don't know what they are. It always, it always, it, it, it's never clear at the state level versus the federal level. So I don't know where Florida's rules stand. Um, but my point is like, he has hundreds of possibly hundreds of thousands of donors in the United States. He at least has tens of thousands of donors in the United States. This is 2022. The race is in 2024. 
Trump has a problem on his flank here. That is not nothing. That is not 2016, where you have a lot of candidates who have really good resumes, but not a lot of, uh, you know, don't have a really high public profile, all going into that race looking to gain, you know, best advantage, right? We had this like amazing field of all these top tier, you know, prime quality candidates, right? Set Rubio, Cruz, uh, um, Jeb Bush. I mean, you know, over all these people who are like, they're the next star. They're global superstars. They're going to be big stars, right? And then, but, you know, what they didn't have was a proven national track record. And they didn't have a huge, you know, public exposure. And COVID and Democratic hatred of DeSantis have given him enormous visibility uh, across the country and enormous visibility to Republicans, which dovetails with our early part of this conversation. He's, a, he's also, can I just say, he's got parents because he has been consistently on message about the concerns of parents, not just about COVID, but about critical race theory, about control of the schools, about parent interaction with teachers, about teachers unions. He has just been consistent on that. And he's actually you know, I mean, you can argue about some of the legislation if you disagree with it, but he has had a message. He's stuck with it. He hasn't caved um, to any of the sort of you know woke challenges that have been presented. And that message appeals to far more than just Republican voting parents. That appeals to those independents. It appeals to, as we saw in the story that, that Noah mentioned earlier from the Wall Street Journal, even to hardcore Democratic parents who are just sick of the Democratic Party's approach to their needs. Okay, there are, no, I've, yeah, go ahead. Just, there are a, a lot of Trump detractors on the right these days. Um, I don't just mean uh, never Trumpers or whatever you want to call them, but uh, among the Nat cons or the trad cons, there there's a lot, there's a sentiment of like, oh, he screwed it all up. I don't want to see him again. Or even just, even just sort of uh, working class Republican voters who don't want, who don't want to deal with the sort of the drama and the buffoonery again. Um, DeSantis, from what I can tell, doesn't have sort of a, a, a population of right-wing detractors. Right, well, no, the key but is, he's also, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I mean, he's, he's flirting with what, what people who are in national Republican politics appear to feel like they have to do, which is to be very dismissive of the January 6th investigations or even the events that led up to January 6th. And also, you know, ref, not being coy about relitigating 2020 insofar as we can see pitfalls for Republicans ahead of that primary race and in 2024, it will be the temptation to litigate 2020 ad infinitum and perhaps to soothe Donald Trump's ego and by proxy and association, the wounded egos of his supporters. Um, he's He's been kind of walking the line on that, but he's clearly not not doing enough to distance himself in my view, because you can get trapped in that. You can get caught up in that. If that happens on the debate stage, and you get 20, 30 minutes of a contest to put, pitch yourself as the most aggrieved while seeking to move on in a necessary way, um, you can get trapped in the, in, the, in the Trump you know jet stream there. Okay, so here's the thing. I have now heard in the last week from three people, three different people independently who have seen Trump recently at, at Mar-a-Lago and elsewhere that he is obsessed with DeSantis. He is obsessed with DeSantis and he hates DeSantis. Now, why does he hate DeSantis? He has no reason to. He hates DeSantis because DeSantis is his rival. And so like a 
you know, like the pugilist that he is, you know, if you remember like Muhammad Ali in the run up to his fights, he would he would he would uh, incept a kind of loathing of his the person that he was going to box against to give him this, you know, uh, uh, emotional, you know, edge uh, that he could use, uh, you know, to to go into the ring with. And it seems that Trump is very much in that position with the He doesn't want anybody else to have a profile in the Republican Party. DeSantis has an entirely independent profile. And the whole point about Trump is that his life froze basically on on Election Day 2020. It's all he cares about. And DeSantis was the warrior in 2021 and in 2020, but also in 2021 on the idea that Democrats, that the that the status liberals had gone way too far, that they were screwing with parents, they were screwing with freedoms, they were screwing with you. And and it resonates. That's what that hundred and two million dollars is. That is. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, but like DeSantis also still has power right now. And Trump only has the illusion of power, which the couple of times he's trotted it out to endorse people hasn't always played out the way he hoped. Now he's been hedging his bets and endorsing when it's obvious who might, you know, have a shot. But DeSantis has real power. He controls one of the largest states in in the country. He has a, a national platform, thanks in part to the media's obscenely ridiculous behavior towards him. Trump doesn't have that. Trump is in a weird sort of exile uh, position, even though he's he sort of denies that his social media thing has flopped his you know, he, he's he tries to make news in a way that hasn't been very effective for him. And even though, you know, the only his hope is that the Democrats try to do in 2024 what they did with, you know, some of the races earlier and make it about Trump. But I think DeSantis is in a much more powerful position in terms of the actual power he holds right now vis-a-vis Trump. Right. And I think if you think about it, Trump's attacks on Republicans are that they're they're bad. They're bad and they 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 they're going to give in to the liberals. They're going to give in to liberal. They don't like it. They're bad about him and then they're going to give in to the liberals. So DeSantis neutralizes both of those in different ways. He is not an attacker of Trump, though he may become an attacker. He will have to get into it with Trump if they are running against each other. He will have no choice. Trump will come at him. He will have to come back. I mean, he can't just say, honor your service, but we need to move on. That won't be enough. That won't be sufficient because Trump will say your wife is ugly. You know, your children need to be in prison. You know, uh, you know, you're fat. I don't know what he'll say, whatever he has to say to knock him off his game. And, you know, you have to have somebody who can respond in some fashion uh, you know, that that isn't that doesn't seem wimpy like like Jeb Bush. Right. OK, so um, but he has uh, he's not going to be able to make the case that DeSantis is a cuck for the left because the left hates DeSantis as much as it hates Trump. And he is not going to be able to say and DeSantis is going to be able to to say, I'll tell you what, John, hang on, I'm interrupting. Yeah, I apologize, ahead. but I'll yeah, tell go. you what Trump's going to do, because yeah. for all the nonsense about how this guy, you know, just just is uh, a wrecking ball to media narratives. He is the first to embrace mainstream media narratives because he lives in mainstream, he lives for mainstream media. And what's the big knock on DeSantis in mainstream media? You let people die. You let people die with your lax COVID regime. He's going to embrace that 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 attack, maybe not directly, maybe not in the way the Atlantic did or would, but 
in a, in a, in a sense, he will because it burnishes his own COVID record and it is attractive to the kind of people that he wants to be attractive to in, in you know, mainstream figures with a big media presence. Yeah, but and that is playing with fire. See, that's of where, course it is. that's where, no, but I mean, that's where his hold on the but Republican electorate. He always did this. He did this in 2016 too. Yeah, I know. But his hold on the Republican electorate, remember, we didn't have, we had a vague set of issues in 2016 that he exploited perfectly down the road, right? How we felt about the last years in Iraq and, you know, the stuff about the, you know, uh, general social malaise owing to the uh, to the financial meltdown and how white people were being left behind and all of that. Right. We had the biggest disruption in modern American life happen in 20 and 2021, and it's still going on in 2022. It's not over yet. And if he says if he says the Democrats are right about Ron DeSantis, who is the only Republican politician who stood up to the, I mean, he wasn't the only one, but he was the most. Which was a huge political risk. That was a huge political risk he took at the time and he was battered for it for months so that he's getting a payoff now because he deserved, he took the right, he was right. Yeah, and he was not cowed by them. His fans may go, "Mm, I don't know. I I like, I kind of like that guy. Really? I don't know. I like, I kind of like that guy. Like they didn't like McCain. They didn't like McCain when Trump went after McCain. They like DeSantis. He Did you will see the be, reception yeah. he got this weekend? He went to a UFC fight. He was treated like a rock star. DeSantis, uh-huh. yeah. like a rock star. That's got to be driving Trump yeah. crazy. Trump's yeah. rallies do not get that kind of, he right. doesn't get that kind of love and adoration yeah. anymore. And that's so, the nucleolus that you identified, John, of yeah. Trump support way back in the right. day. So I, I don't like know. Yeah, that's right. The, yeah, cultural, the Sub Rosa. Yeah, yeah the, pro, the Republican proletariat or the American proletariat that is invisible to that is invisible to most most people. Were, was invisible to the to the Republican political establishment. It is invisible no longer. And obviously, somebody, if Trump is to be beaten, well, two things. One is he would may not run, but if he is to be beaten, which is going to be a hard slog somebody is going to have to peel away some of his base, right? To sort of neutralize that effect. Somebody will have to be of appeal to that group of people, as well as to the wine moms uh, who fled the party, but may come back. And that's, that could really be DeSantis. And that's why I'm focused on this number because it's all theoretical. All this talk about 2024 has been theoretical until this moment, until this $102 million fundraising number. We've never seen a number like this in a local election, in a statewide election. What we, we've seen people spend $150 million of their own money. Meg Whitman spent $150 million of her own money running and losing for governor in California. We've seen people spend enormous amounts of their own money. We have never seen somebody grassroots raise for a floor for a governor's race, a hundred million dollars. And the year isn't over yet. It's April. The race is in November. I mean, you know, we don't know where that number is going to go, but every single one of those people who writes a check to DeSantis is a potential DeSantis voter. And every single one of those people is a potential Trump voter. I'll give you another weird fundraising story that's kind of um, uh, not related. It's a bit of a digression, but Liz Cheney raised $3 million in hard money in the first quarter. 
mm-hmm. all that comes out of, you know, those are donations, obviously, from all around the country. But three million dollars in Wyoming goes around Wyoming and back. Yeah, she's going to I mean, she's, money is going to plaster money, the whole state yeah. with 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 ads. But here's the point, like money can't save you, right? Money really can't save you if you don't have a message, right? Money. Money can't protect you from uh, from a tide and money can't make you a good candidate. That's the story of money. However, if you have a story you want to tell, if you have and you and you have something that is of appeal to people. And you seem to be riding the wave of the most important matters facing the country, then money is an accelerant. Right. Money, money. You can you can take money and burn it in a in a barrel and it's not going to have any effect. But if but if it dovetails with something that is of interest to people, getting relentlessly hammering that message that people are interested in so that they it's unavoidable and that they can start associating you with it as much as possible. Money is the greatest thing on Earth. So it's also Liz- a good. Yeah. It's also a good indicator for you. Right. You know, it, it, yeah tells you where you stand right so liz cheney's situation is going to be she's going to say i've taken an unpopular stand for a lot of people because i believe this country is i've i've i'm risking everything for what i believe in and that's the kind of person you want in washington that's what i think and then other people will say she's a turncoat she's this she's that she's giving into the and it'll be an interesting test of which leadership is aligned against her on congressional right. leadership. She, exactly. So she can say, I am here. I don't, I am beholden to no right. one. Talk about the establishment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got, I got Democrats hating me. I'm a Cheney. I got Republicans hating me because I don't kowtow to them. I'm here for you. You know, that's, that's a pretty potent populist message, but so will be the, your return code who is sucking up to the Democrats. Right. I mean, so that it's going to be an interesting test. We'll see. She will at least have a fit she will at least be in a position where if she loses we will know why she lost and if she wins we will know why she won and that's a that's a very you know that's a useful thing in politics so that's not often the case now let me talk to you for a minute about our friends at bambi uh if you remember bambi is that uh firm that helps you with hr because running a business hr issues can kill you and Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E, was created specifically for small businesses so they don't have to hire some HR manager for $70,000 a year. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. And that will change HR from your biggest headache to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, chat, or, or, or email. From onboarding to terminations, Bambi customizes your policies to fit your business and helps you manage your employees day-to-day for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees. You cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. And... Let's also talk about Novo, powerfully simple business checking. Unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, 
Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who found the customizable business checking solution that admires their bravery. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co slash commentary. Plus, Commentary Magazine listeners get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co slash commentary to sign up for free. Novo.co slash commentary. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings FA, member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Um, So I'm heartened after two weeks of hearing how the sky was falling by the results of the first round of the French elections. Even though you may look at this and say, oh, no, oh, my God, look what's happened. Marine Le Pen, Marine Le Pen is coming. Finally, 30 years after her father started making on-roads as a sort of neo, semi-neo-Nazi, a far-right, uh, you know, terrible person uh, playing footsie, and she's a Putin a cat's paw and all of that. Uh, so the results are in from the first round of elections. So Emmanuel Macron, the current president, gets uh, 27% of the vote, and Le Pen gets 24 uh-oh, that's bad. Only 27%. But but 35% of voters didn't vote at all. That's actually right. pretty high, right? 35 right. people just didn't even go to the polls. Right. So 27-24. In 2017, when Macron, after the two-week runoff period, got nearly 70% or more than 70% of the vote, in 2024, Macron got 24% and Le Pen got 21 So it is exactly the same. And what's different? What's different is the screaming hysteria of the our democracy is in peril crowd. Well, to be um, fair, runoff polling has it far closer than 2017. It did. It did last time also. The polling is bad. Le Pen, once again, wildly underperformed her polls in the polling before the first round. French polling's bad. Nobody had Macron winning 70% last time. Um, uh, it's interesting because uh, our friends, the Tradcons, uh, thought they had a wonderful out in this election four or five months ago because there was this candidate, Emmanuel Zamour, who is a new kind of figure on the right, on the nationalist right, uh, who was uh, funny and amusing and, and clever and, uh, and, uh, uh, and was a way away from Le Pen, you know, who was just, very problematic because she her, she does have kind of neo-Nazi roots or some form of extremist roots and is a total, you know, is a, is a total Putinista. So it was like, oh, we've been saved. She's like John, she's like the John, he, Zamora is going to come up and she's the old story and he's the new story. And then he completely faded. She got exactly the voters that she always gets. And we'll see if she gets any more. That's that. That's the big story. So her block, whatever that block is, they got thirty-one uh, percent because he she got twenty-four. Zamor got seven. Uh, there was a far-left candidate who got twenty-one percent of the vote, almost as much as 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 Le Pen. Um, so you could actually say if you add Macron's number up with that number, because who are those people going to vote for Le Pen? I don't think so. Uh, right there, you got almost 50% of the vote among the people who did vote. But I want to talk about this a little bit because um, there, 
there is something incredibly unseemly about the way in which people who are worried about nationalist movements and uh, understandably and 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 w- what they might mean and all of that how they are they are emotional basket case hysterical lunatics who are ruining uh, anybody's ability to understand what's really going on uh, in 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 the political circumstances in which, particularly here in the United States, we watch Europe and and European questions. Because my God, I mean, I had really assumed a couple of weeks ago that there was something very serious going on here with Le Pen. Like this was, yeah, a, a dam had burst. And even though we had Ukraine and this and that and the other thing, you know, boy, there was a rearguard action here. And it really does look like the exact same lineup. That is, there is a certain 25% of the French voters or whatever it is are, you know, are, are lining up in that and they are not growing. Well, even if he wins, though, I think the, the, the real thing that we I think you're right, John, that, that by with the alarmism that overtakes any discussion, particularly American media of these sorts of French elections, uh, what we miss is actually the longer term issue that should concern us, which is who's going to if even if Macron wins, which he probably will in the runoff, if he's weakened at all, that that signals a pretty divided country. France is, is a more divided country than it was even a few years ago. That's bad for Europe in terms of its response to Russia, right? Because there is a sort of sense of, you know, new leadership in Germany. There's Macron in France, who's, who's sort of heading a week, who will be possibly heading a weaker coalition. And then there's the UK and, and other European countries. Who is the, you know, we don't have a, a clear leader. He's made a bid for that. Remember he did that ridiculous thing where he kind of cosplayed Zelensky and fatigues and a t-shirt and stuff, which didn't go over very well. But he is trying to make a bid for being a sort of voice, the voice of, of Europe. And, and if he's in a weakened coalition at home, that's gonna fail. That will have implications for how Europe continues to deal with Russia. Now, how has he done that in the most French way possible, trying to take both sides of the issue? If, you, if, if Putin needs to talk to somebody in Europe as a head of state, it's Macron. That's his his line into Europe. Every other avenue is essentially closed except for Budapest. Um, and yet at the same time, lobbying for more aggressive uh, European engagement in the crisis. So I'm not exactly sure precisely what he's standing for here when it comes to the uh, his his effort to lead Europe through this crisis seems very muddled from my perspective. Well, he's a very muddled politician. And I, I'm not praising him. I just think that the, the dynamic in France isn't that France is turning into Hungary. There's just no evidence of that. And this election, as I say, because the results are astoundingly similar to 2017, the idea that there has been a kind of progressive degeneration uh, in the French body politic toward, you know, toward this Le Penist view simply is not, is not, you know, it's not supported by 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 actual millions upon millions of voters going to the polls and doing what they did last time and presumably probably doing pretty much what they did in 2017 when the runoff is over. But th- this this provides me with a with a transition in the hysterical, screaming, liberal, neurotic psychosis period of the Atlantic's uh, event last week with the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, my alma mater, on disinformation. Uh, And here's why it's of interest to me. Two things, one of which is disinformation was a highly controversial term 
that was used in the 1980s to describe how the Soviet Union peddled false stories and flooded them through complicated media uh, uh, in, in complicated ways, threaded them through third world media so they would explode outward to discredit the West. That was disinformation. So there are all kinds of things. The most, the most impressive being that um, uh, that um, AIDS was generated in a lab, uh, and 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 spread to kill black people, and that uh, and also that um, crack cocaine was a CIA plot. All of which originated from basically from the KGB and various other kinds of stories. And they're still being peddled today, right? By 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 many many sources. So now disinformation means things that people say that you don't like, and 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 th this magazine and this uh, this uh, arm of the University of Chicago are arguing for active government suppression or use of government power to control the algorithms of social media platforms so that lies cannot seduce the body politic. That alone is astonishing, uh, given that the Atlantic saw fit to fire uh, Kevin Williamson for the crime of uh, you know, saying something flip on a podcast and that it should then be, you know, so that, that makes sense. But so the Chicago Thinker, a student publication out of Chicago uh, in the noble tradition of Counterpoint magazine that I started 40 some odd years ago that didn't didn't survive me much at all, but is now, you know, there is now this conservative publication, Chicago Thinker, and they attended the conference and a kid asked Ann Applebaum, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, uh, you're so concerned about disinformation. I understand that. What do you make of the fact that the Hunter Biden laptop story was suppressed? Uh, and Anne, who was an acquaintance of mine and somebody that I sort of respect and admire, said, well, I don't think it really, I'm not interested in that. Oh, really? So, uh, so disinformation was being spread by this literal disinformation. 50 people saying that it was a, that the laptop was engineered and created by Russian intelligence. That is disinformation. Now, I don't know who made it, who, who, and maybe it's, it, was, it wasn't disinformation in the classic sense because whoever peddled this idea believed it at the time. But, but it, was have, even, yeah, it, it wasn't just at Applebob. There was a panel where Brian Stelter of CNN was, was interviewing, you know, talking amongst a bunch of people. And another, another one of these student reporters stood up and said, OK, well, well, I understand what you're saying. But what about all the things that CNN alone has gotten wrong? And he listed them. He talked about the Kavanaugh trial. He talked about the kid, you know, the, the, the Covington Catholic school kid. He just listed them all. And obviously the, the Russiagate stuff and Brian Stelter's response. I think it's time for a lunch break. I'll talk to you <laughs> off the record later. Like the, the, the unwillingness. And then at the end of the whole conference, it was wrapped up by the Atlantic Senator Jeffrey Goldberg, who suggested that by asking those questions, those students were trying to spread disinformation. I mean, it is it is absolutely bizarre. That was, that was repugnant. And I want to say this because I know Jeffrey Goldberg and I think he runs a reasonably, but he is a person of low character. His treatment of Kevin Williamson was unconscionable. And this attack on the Chicago Thinker, which is a conservative publication with 19-year-old kids who, are, who actually went and asked perfectly decent and good questions, saying that they are peddlers of disinformation, he should go jump in a lake. That is disgusting. He should be ashamed of himself. 
I, you know, but I, as I said at the time that he fired Kevin or allowed Kevin to be fired or whatever happened, once you cross that Rubicon, once you once you give in to that kind of behavior, your character is going to degrade. And it degraded this week. And shame on him and everybody who knows him, who listens to this podcast, please tell him that I said so, because that was foul. That was foul. It was abusive. He's a he's an a you know he's an adult with a with a with a first rank publication that is paid for by a billionaire who is ha- having his back. These are kids running a publication at a school that they are doing for love and because they are committed to ideas and they are committed to the to the to the political conversation in the United States. Um, you know they get no money for it. They get no help for it. I I ran a student publication. It's a lot of work, and you you know all of that. An independent publication. They get no help from the faculty. They get no help from the university. They're doing it because they want to be part of the conversation on their campus. And to call them peddlers of disinformation is just an unspeakable act of vileness and slander and libel. It it might be a little pedantic, but words have definitions, and that's the job that you're in as a magazine. And the Atlantic seems to have forgotten the distinctions between disinformation and misinformation, which are real Um, disinformation of the the sort, John, that you're describing Soviet active measures using subconscious multiplicators to advance narratives that are cooked up in uh, Russian military intelligence and the KGB. Uh, That's disinformation. Misinformation is probably of the sort that we saw around the Hunter laptop thing, where I don't think that the former director of national intelligence uh, was lying when he said that this was this laptop was cooked up in, in the Kremlin and, and disseminated in order to sow uh, mistrust in the, in the United States. I don't think he was actively trying to deceive us. He had convinced himself of this. I That's don't know misinformation. that. I, first of all, I don't know that. It's the heat of the election. It's October of 2020. They're panicked. Trump is going to win again. And they would say and they would have said anything. That's the point. I, by the way, agree with Ann Applebaum, who said she doesn't think that true or not, that the Hunter laptop would have, in fact, been dispositive or had an effect on the on the end result of the election. I don't believe that. Again, I think it was a bank shot and that and that you would even you still would have to have had a hard proof that. Joe Biden profited illegally from things that were, you know, that were revealed on Hunter Biden's laptop for even to have had a kind of late hit effect. Trump being a uniquely bad candidate to try to take advantage <laughs> that's of something what's, like that's that. That's what's so important about this. We had this debate around whether or not to say Donald Trump lies, right? Because you have to understand intent and intention and what what his inputs are, what what he's privy to and what he's not privy to. And that's all information that's outside the purview of reporters and journalists which is why so many refused to deem him a liar until moral clarity became the objective of reporting and not actual clarity. Right. But so, as I say, you're right that disinformation is a very specific term that the Atlantic decided to misuse for its own purposes to mean people who are making arguments, even peddling, uh, 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 you know, uh, fact-based ideas where the facts are inaccurate is not disinformation, which is a deliberate conscious effort to sabotage uh, a political rival or something through the dissemination of invented stories through favored media, uh, you know, systems. And as I say, to run a conference for three days and then to end up by saying that 19-year-old 
intellectually impressive kids who come respectfully and ask questions at your idiot conference where you're sucking up to Obama and trying to get yourself, you know, credit from your billionaire lady donor um, and play all these games to then libel them and abuse them. You know, I mean, I hope nobody does to Jeffrey Goldberg's kids what he just did to those kids. Well, and that as you, you shame on him. And you mentioned earlier the solutions that were proposed and discussed throughout that conference should also worry people on both sides of the aisle in terms of uh, having a truly free press that can ask the tough questions and and uh, you know challenge the people in power because the idea was it's the big lie issue that we had throughout COVID. It's the the elites know best. We're the most educated. We we know what's happening. We can understand all these complicated issues. So we have to control the information that gets to the to the average person because the average person just can't handle the truth. That message is what got Trump elected. That message is, is toxic to the idea of, of what true, you know, liberal free speech principles, which are valued by people still on the right and the left should be about. Um, in response to Noah's point about the distinction between misinformation and disinformation, I have to say, I, I don't think, unfortunately, I think that the distinction is not as clear as we'd like it to be these days. Um, Misinformation is it's 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 it can be very clear cut if um, uh, uh, a, a media organization or a body of experts look into something, give it their best and then get it wrong. That's 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 misinformation. If you're uh, um, uh, a newspaper or a, a social media platform and you say and you say, well, people are saying that this is this is fake. Sounds good to me. I don't want to deal with this. Let's let's kill it. What is that? Um, they they could have delved into it then, and they didn't. Um, it was it, they were they were happy to hear that it was that someone had declared it uh, fake, the laptop fake, and they went with that. It's 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 a murky sort of border between the two. I think. Right, but I think that Goldberg, by using the word disinformation to 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 slander the and libel the Chicago thinker, then gave the lie to his entire conference, which was not an effort to discuss uh, disinformation, which we see at work now in Russia's behavior toward Ukraine, right? They are using disinformation to rally the Russian people against the Ukrainians, right? By saying the Ukrainians are bombing themselves, by, by, by saying that, you know, the things that they're doing, the Ukrainians are doing to themselves, you know, raping and killing people and staging hate crimes and all of that stuff. Um, in an effort to bolster their their effort, their propagandistic effort to maintain public support. There, there is a literal disinformation campaign going on right now that we can see that gives a lot of the idea that what happened in, in America in 2016 was disinformation. We know that the Russians and the Chinese and people are trying to futz around in our elections. They're partially they test our they 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 do stuff that Jim Megs talks about in the piece we talked about last week and that will be up online this week about the cyber war, you know, futzing around with election systems, maybe. But, you know, this idea that people putting articles on Facebook that you don't like, you know, leads people to believe untruths that they wouldn't otherwise believe. I mean, let's put it this way, like the Comet Pizza story about the you know pedophilia ring in the basement of politics and prose and comments whatever it is um that wasn't disinformation it was something else it was some kind of 
deranged moral panic bubbling up from this, you know, I don't know what you would call it, this kind of populist ether or whatever, populist uh, tar, tar pit. Um, but that's not a top-down system intending, designed to confuse people and peddle a false narrative that will change global geopolitics. It was something else. You and know they're just that? muddying the meaning of terms here. Um, you know what was a top-down uh, constructed narrative that was intended to sort of change global politics? Ben Rhodes' echo chamber. Uh, in This came from the Obama administration. Former Deputy, Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes bragged about how he would feed uh, young, impressionable journalists certain stories to create a narrative around the Iran deal, and they wouldn't question it because they were young, impressionable journalists. <laughs> of course, he believed those stories to be true. So in that sense, it wasn't disinformation. That's sort of where Noah's point, Noah's point comes in, which is why the use of this term is so offensive. And of course, it was Obama at this very conference who said he just, you know, he really, to be honest, one of his failings was he didn't take the danger of disinformation seriously enough. His only thing like you fact. mean like if you can you, you if you like your doctor you can keep your doctor like that kind of disinformation remember that the lie of the year if you like your doctor you can keep your doctor that is actually that was disinformation that was out of the mouth of the president of the United States so anyhow uh, thank you very much for listening we've gone long uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe Christina no I'm John Pot keep the camel burning. <laughs>